Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, October 3rd, 2020. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. Well, it's a hot, smoky day in California, which it, these days is a bit of a cliche, but I do have on, probably breathing in similar kinds of fire particles, the one and only Mike O'Dorney and also Clark Cooney. Mike, we have historically, probably over the past three or four recordings, talked a little bit about coffins, a little bit about travelling module pieces, a little bit about Marklin in its natural form and also potentially in its DCC two-track converted form. You have the floor. What is going on in the model railroading hobby with you currently? What kind of updates do you have for the listeners? Well, interestingly enough, a company called Hattons, which is a British oh, company. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, a, very lar- a very large, like a Walters of Europe. Oh, and uh, they have imported this um, laser module system then with laser and it's designed for people who are um who don't have a workshop mm. so you can basically get it all together on like a uh a building for um monster model works building or some other laser cut building and you produce this module frame which is light and thin and um, apparently there's a little bit of a quality control issue because a Pelly Soberg has been putting one together and he has commented on how the fact is that he's had to he's had to cut and file a lot of the pieces because they don't quite match up as good as he'd like, which I think is the nature of laser cutting that you uh, um, you're burning through an eighth inch piece of wood, which means your accuracy is going to be maybe a sixteenth of an inch at most. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, then when you define an opening in a uh, piece of laser cut wood, do you do you count the charred charcoal as part of the hole, or do you file it down, or do you push it with your fingers to it crumbles off? So, I mean, it's it's a trivial problem. You just have to recognize it, get a file when you put the thing together. My my pr- approach is I am uh, assembling a um, a number of modules using this technique of very lightweight plywood, and I have a uh, a series of modules that I'm doing. One is for a club that is a standard North American module club which has the standard North American um, two-foot by four-foot or um, 30-inch by four-foot module. And like most clubs, most people build two, so you have a complete town on two pieces of wood rather than one. So you have a 30 by eight-foot town, which is handy for switching, gives you enough room to wiggle. And I'm doing some of those, and I'm also doing a set of European modules that I will use at home to essentially run in a circle. In other words, run trains in a circle. So I will have four one-meter modules that form a box, which will be about roughly um, two and a half meters square, which will go around my Christmas tree. Wonderful. So uh, it'll allow me returning to, to the hobby run to its my... origins, or returning the hobby to its I'm yes. again. returning the hobby to its origins. Right. Yes. <laughs> and then I have on uh, in the European modules there is this oddball spec that goes back way back when, where the back edge of the module had a narrow gauge line running, either a, a 16 millimeter um, TT slash BMO, you know, HO meter gauge. And I have some of that. And We talked about that um, in an earlier episode, selective compression in yes. the module. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it'll look good too. So, so I, and I'll, I'll run that. So I, I am working on those thing, two things right now. And I am, you, when, the, when you have a crisis like this, you have the beauty of over-engineering everything, including the legs and the, uh, <laughs> the holes for the wiring and yes. things like that, where 
Um, you know, somebody said, well, if you're de designing an Apollo capsule, I could see putting a lot of engineering into it. Yes. But it's only a toy train. Just drill some holes and poke the wire through. And so, so I, uh, I am at that stage. So that's, that's basically taking up all my time. I'm Can I ask you some questions? Very do, you much, do you actually have some of the Haddon's offerings, module offerings? I don't have any. Okay. No, I don't have, I don't have any. I've seen a few of them on the internet. Interesting. And, uh, because that's uh, the kind of thing I, which I, I could certainly... I mean, it's interesting, actually. The hands offerings, they fit a market. I'm trying to think how one would describe it in the US. Wolfers probably is about right. I think of them with the kind of James Ryder model railroading, as James Ryder is a YouTuber. I, it's about getting everyone in the hobby. If you're running it on carpet or, you know, wooden floors, that's fine. It's very um, entry-level. Uh, they do have some high-end offerings, which are pretty amazing. They're known right, yeah. pretty heavily in the UK as well for their second-hand offerings. So they basically they're like Wolfers with a second-hand group as well. They're pretty, uh -huh. yeah, they're pretty much a UK enigma, or probably even an English enigma, let's say, in terms of the way that they run their company. And on YouTube, if you put it in, you will find a lot of, um, well, like our friend Pierre, <laughs> yeah. you, you'll find a lot of people who. Um, well, Clark Cooning historically has been this as well in the hobby, where um, they appreciate their existence but realise that they're a quality control. I mean, in their second-hand market, they've gotten a lot of flack on YouTube historically. I'm not sure if it's still the case about the kinds of locomotives that they'll sell and the amount of work that needs to go into them to actually get them, you know, working properly. Uh, but that being said, the folks that do put in the extra effort on the older locomotives, there's some beautiful YouTube videos about... Um, uh, fires in um, steam locomotives, like just getting the level of detail to an absolutely kind of beautiful level. So, I think the the UK market is 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 full of the likes of Clark Cooning with regards to this kind of narrative. But yeah, they are a relatively unique, and I think Walthus is probably Walthus. If Walthus had a second hand market, um, that's probably what happens is like uh, for our American and non well for our, our folks who've never seen uh, a Haddon's catalogue or you know dabbled on their website anyway so you haven't actually ordered any of these i'm wondering what what's the actual format of the module itself well the module itself is a two-track mainline which mm -hmm. is like roughly five inches for one and seven inches for the other okay. uh, with the with the european modules the tracks are a little farther back because mm -hmm. the europeans have chosen to make a module which is not a flat module but has a stair-step approach with a a rounded transition mm -hmm. So the, the front three inches of the module is a certain height, then you go back about an inch and a quarter, and then the middle of the module, which is most of the module, is a uh, three inches higher, or, or, yes. or an inch and a quarter higher, and then the back half is another inch and a quarter higher. So mm. you have this three-step mm. view, which, which looks nice. It makes the modules look a lot better. Yeah. And, uh, and um, people do tricks with it. They uh, When you have two modules... All you have to care about are the two ends. So everything in the middle, you can curve it, you can Absolutely. make ravines, you can put bridges, yeah. uh, and and uh, typically most most of the European modules are two or three, you know, compatible Units pieces. Yes, yes, yeah, right. And uh, um, so uh, I am I am making ones that are unusually tiny for the Europeans, hmm. and uh, I think the Europeans have to have, by virtue of the fact there are so few European modelers. They have evolved into much larger modules, so that that you would have you would have you know a whole hall full of modules with say fourteen people bringing them, hmm. 
Whereas in the U.S., if you had a module club, you'd have 50 members. And, um, everybody get, might might get two modules in. And mm. so you know, let's let's unpack time. that. Let's unpack that statement. Um, you're saying that the module folks in Europe tend to have more modules per person, which is kind of your experience as well, right? That you have, you know, you have modules right. that you kind of build up over time. So you end up with a sub- relatively substantial collection, which means that if yes. 15 of these folk would come, they would each have 8 to 12 modules in that order that they would bring along. Is this what you're saying? Well, typically what happens is that uh, here in the, the San Francisco Bay Area chapter, mm. Most of the members have either two or three modules. Mm-hmm. A few have one, mm-hmm. and a few have a whole garage full of maybe, I won't say a dozen, but they have eight. Mm. So it would be an interesting up, question for Mike Slater, actually. I don't get a sense of how many modules Mike Slater might have. I always okay. thought that he was yeah. more in your, in your kind of ballpark. But I also, there's a, there's a phenomenon in the community where people... And this is probably also, you know, maybe Rich Murphy, maybe Dave Falkenberg thing, because they built modules for periods of time as well. I mean, I do wonder if people just through freshness and constantly updating need for space may give away modules or, you know, as well. But it is an interesting question. How many, how many modules do you have that are available for showing? And yeah, and I guess I think we had this discussion directly with you a few recordings ago. But I remember talking about it in great detail. But it'd be interesting, actually, to talk to, to folks that make modules on a regular basis to get that average number, because that's an interesting, that's an interesting claim that the, the folks in Europe tend to have more modules um, in their you know, general showable catalog. Interesting. Well, one thing, one thing to bear in mind is that an awful lot of clubs in Europe, when they set up their modules, those modules only go together one way. Mm. So that, that club has a... It's like the uh, Yosemite... Short line, is it called? The one we have here, which is a very beautiful modular layout, but mm. it's, it's 12 or 14 modules that only go together one way. Is that true? And I think I've seen it at shows on multiple times, and you're right. Yeah. But I just thought that was a function of their preferred way. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the features that, of the module, and yes, you're, you're right. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that, that, is, that is typical England. Mm. Um, to have the same setup every time. Now, mm. most of these clubs, you know, they have a, a design that can be expanded or contracted where you can add four, four modules or subtract four modules and change the length or the width depending on the venue they get. Mm. But by and large, they have a favorite size. And uh, and they are generally designed for roundy roundies, which is what you do because people pay to see that. And um, you wind up having club dues of like 20 bucks a year because you make all your money from the museums that pay you. Yes. So uh, people like that. And uh, so I, uh, I, I put turnouts on my module, but when the public's around, I don't do an obsession. But there are, t- there are times when we're in a museum and the museum will be open some night and they, we can ask permission to run an obsession and they'll mm. say, sure. Mm. And the museum, since the museum's open, they uh, are, um, you know, willing to let us come in. I think normally it's comparably expensive to open a museum um, that is, uh, you know, not getting some kind of payment. In other words, mm. the security, the alarms, the mm. caretakers, the desk people. Mm. You know, often m- many of the museums around me will do Christmas parties and they'll rent their hall out to a Chevron or a Clorox. 
Yes. And a goodly number of times they will, uh, they will, um, ask us to stay open as a module club because the people want to see it. And, uh, so, and it's a treat. And the museum likes us and Clorox and Bechtel and Chevron like Whoever's to see putting the money in. Yes, yes. Yeah, so. It's an interesting thing about the national because my recollection of attending a couple of nationals, particularly with the big, you know, super yeah. HO module clubs, is that they will maybe on the Sunday run it as an operating session more than a round around. And maybe on the Sunday. Uh, yeah. So I have seen that done even for the large uh, layouts. And it's particularly fun. I think they, they let people know it's kind of an invitational to come and do some operating. Well, my thought was you, you would normally, you would normally set up an operating layout with the idea of operating it over two or three days. Cause yes. you go through all the paperwork of switch lists and car cards and schedules and all that. But if yeah. you can only do one day, that's fine. Especially if you do the same setup every time yeah. and you've already done all the paperwork and, uh, and you know there are times when I've gotten switch lists where one industry is crossed out, and somebody would say, "Well, we don't have that module this time." Yeah. And uh, so, you, so you have a seven car train, a seven eight car train. But, but I see how people are living in smaller houses, living in apartments, and yes. want to do modeling. And yes. uh, this whole lightweight module is a—I mean, I like it, and I certainly—I didn't originate it. I copied mm. the switching and sipping and switching society and. North Carolina. I copied their modules. Yes. Good folks then, to copy. Yes. And then um, Lionel Strang did a video of interviewing somebody who who did a, uh, a lightweight module himself. Mm. And um, that's floating around on YouTube. Mm. And I, I, you know, I, I very much agree with the techniques that he uses in his video. And mm. the, the person who built the module showed, you know, quite a bit of detail on how he did it. And uh, You're reminding um, me something Michael Dorney, which I need to announce formally, maybe formally in the recording, um, based on a variety of factors, it looks like we'll be moving back to Las Vegas uh, okay. in the new year. Uh, so we'll probably be, well, we will initially be returning to the ha our house in Las Vegas, um, although I think probably we'll, uh, we'll be needing a, a slightly larger house um, in the foreseeable future. So, yeah, I, I will be moving back to Las Vegas area. Um, and I think most of my train stuff will, will travel in boxes, not in coffins. But it is funny returning to that space because there were, there were a couple of really interesting areas that I built what were effectively module sized layouts. And yeah, and going back to that space, I think my wife has already claimed the main one, but I will return to the room that I had, which I built the, um, original land scale layout in, which appears on YouTube. May even appear a video form in this very podcasting feed. So yes, it is interesting times to uh, to consider modules. But I think you've you've raised a number of interesting points, and I did want to have the opportunity of chatting with Clark Kooning to talk about some of okay. these ideas as well. So Mike, if you're happy to stay on the line, we will, uh, will. no doubt return to uh, to some kind of conversation. But pleasure chatting with you as always. Talk to you later. like to introduce someone who no doubt can answer, refute, explore a number of the ideas that Mike O'Donny has presented. Clark, before we get to these questions, which I've actually written down because I found them particularly fascinating as I was chatting with Mike, what is going on with the model railroading hobby and you? Is, is the weather settling? Are you moving back into the uh, layout space? What's going on with the hobby and you currently? 
Yes, winter is returning quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it has become fall. The boat has been taken to the marina for storage, and uh, the fishing season, as far as what I type of fishing I do, is over until uh, the water gets uh, very firm and I can go ice fishing. Um, but uh, the basement season uh, is upon us. Matter of fact, I spent the last, well, I shouldn't say that. I spent two days just trying to clean the garage after the boat left and trying to get kind of semblance of a, of a garage so I can put the van in the garage. And then I've been also working on the basement, uh, cleaning things up because unfortunately the train room becomes sort of, uh, where do I put this? Oh, I'll just throw it in the train room. Believe me, that's my podcasting room currently as well, having yeah, multiple house so, guests. So, yeah. so you, know, you know how it is, and uh, and I think everybody has that. Uh, you know, uh, the people who, you know, I, I kind of look at the, the fellows like uh, uh, Lawrence Agrington, who, you know, lives in Florida and he doesn't have the season, so he tends to, to model all year round, or even Mike. Whereas, uh, you know, us Northerners or people with, uh, with winter, uh, we tend to want to be outside as much as we can uh, mm. in the good weather. And then, you know, we're in the basement for the next uh, uh, six months. Um, but, uh, yeah, things are uh, progressing. Um, the, of course, COVID, uh, again, in our area, uh, in the province of Ontario, Mm. has kind of, uh, like everywhere else, raised a, a little bit of numbers. So they've asked people not to gather other than your own uh, household. Mm. So that's kind of put a damper on some of the club stuff, even though in our area we haven't had any active cases since March. Mm. Well, we live we have a president now so who has it, so... <laughs> Yeah. We, we're well, making up for you we're making up for you guys yeah it and and this isn't to belittle the problem uh you never want to see anybody ill oh, or anything oh, but uh, i thought there was quite a in, for us people who are used to uh you know universal health care and that um i thought there was kind of a neat little thing it says uh president trump has to be released because he He's been turned down for uh, health care in the States mm. for health insurance. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, we we physically just in this area have some of the highest cases in, in Northern California. And I think a lot of it is just to do with poverty. I think the yeah. direct correlation is very high. And, yeah, I mean, it, although it, it can is. obviously strike anyone, it's, um, yeah, it's a very real phenomenon in this country that, you know, healthcare and access to healthcare, and even even when you have access to healthcare, how good the healthcare is that you can access. Like when I was in Vegas, we paid a small you know small amount of money for healthcare, but it was just nonsense. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even healthcare really. So yeah, there's there's a, there are a series of problems in this country with regards to healthcare. Anyway, yeah, well we we're you know we're very lucky here in Canada and uh, yes uh, with healthcare and and some of the best healthcare in the world for. I won't say it's there is a cost to it. You pay it in your taxes, but yes. Well, look at Lionel Strang. I mean, Lionel Strang is the poster yeah. child for Canadian healthcare, right? Yeah, so. and you know you're not going to lose your house though if something Amen. happens. To you. Amen. So, anyway, uh, anyway, back to the fun subjects. I did have some so, interesting news for you, which you probably already know. I was chatting with uh, Chris Abbott this morning. He and I do a regular game 
uh, pretty well every other Saturday morning. And he let me in on the news that Trevor Marshall has moved to uh, to the West Coast, so to speak. Did you know this? I I heard it could be in the move in the wind. I did not know what happened. Yes, he's left the yes. building apparently. Well, that's the term. That's the term that uh, Chris used, and I said you can't use that term anymore. And now I've used that term. Well, he's left the <laughs> region at least, and uh, yeah, he's he's now on the west coast apparently. And according to Chris, he basically, aside from some of the brass and some of the locomotives and stuff, got rid of almost everything. Which seems, I mean, he's he's rebuilding afresh on the West Coast by the sounds of things. I think, you know, and then this is for all model railroaders. Uh, now, if you're doing modules mm. and you've got modules that uh, can be moved, uh, that's a little different scenario. But for us, a lot of people who build a permanent, and I use that word, uh, you know, a lot of things we do temporary, and temporary means 20 years. Um, that people who build layouts and go, okay, and if I move, I'll take it with me mm. and I'll put it into where it never works because the space is different. The dimensions yes. are different. The, yes. And, uh, and, you know, moving from, from Ontario to the West Coast, just the freight alone, yeah. he's, he's better off to pay, to buy and build new. <laughs> But he also, I mean, he's a modeler who has evolved, not even to say that his starting work wasn't absolutely gorgeous, but he has evolved every aspect of his modeling since when he first built that layout. I mean, some of it, it kind of evolved through the building of the layout, but he certainly is someone who no doubt when he builds afresh will build with a wide variety of like new and interesting techniques that he's cultivated over the, you know, development of the layout and also all the additional stuff that he does, right? Sure, and and some of the things that he hasn't even thought up yet. Yeah, certainly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, I know uh, even myself uh, building this current layout, uh, I've used some new stuff that I would not probably have done in the past. So yeah. it's it's a you know it's a new beginning. It's um, you you have all that experience. Hopefully, um, it's the same as somebody who's starting off brand new. And I and I. And I'm always uh, want to help the the newcomers. Um, you know, when they start off new, they're building that little four by eight or five by nine or whatever they're doing, and and they're going to build it, and they think they're you know it's really fantastic, and then they get sort of three quarters of the way through it, they're running trains, maybe starting scenery, and then they go, ooh, you know what? When I from when I first started, I've learned so much yes. more, and they yes. tear it down. And, uh, and that's the hobby to a certain point. Certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can get out to Anna Marie, of course, with the COVID, it's a little different, but if you can watch the Anna Marie X program, yes. if you can take part in, in maybe a local show just to even see the different modules and the ideas and some of the building techniques, uh, you know, that is, that is such a boon to, to new people. And then, uh, one of the things I think we do miss, even though it's, you know, you can learn some stuff on YouTube and whatnot, it's that social interaction. It's that question, oh, how did you do this? Yes. And I think that's one of the things we are missing right now uh, uh, in yes. that. Well, the old hobby store interaction too, right? I mean, that's the, that's the yeah, difficulty of the current times. Although, that being said... <laughs> In MRX, particularly the less formal, I've, I've talked about this so many times, it's now become a, 
a meme, the looking on people's workbenches, you know, this thing it does give some aspect to that. I mean, it, it, it's different now. Like, I think what was there then, clearly not available, but what's available now just visually, if you're willing to spend the time, I think probably gives something that's different and might still provide enough. And I should point this out. The NMRX presenters are incredibly easy to get in contact with as well. So if people are observing things through, you know, NMRX, they could drop an email to one of the presenters and just ask the questions after the fact as well. So, you know, things are just new, right? The old way, no longer possible. The new way has to be explored to fill in the gaps to make it just as good as the old way in some way. Or or even better. Even better. Or even better. (laughs) Um, You know, where do you get to... Where do you get to talk to somebody, you know, in across the pond or certainly. in Australia? Yep, certainly. Uh, Just a lot of pond. In a local show. Yes. So one of the things that I would like to see more of in, mm-hmm. in the future when, when we, uh, and I hate this cliche when we get back to normal, but when we, when there is some, uh, much more freedom to, to visit each other. Mm. Is and I know um, in our air well in the Toronto area there was a group that did it for I don't know probably twenty five years and they just held a layout tour mm. and you would show up they you pay your seven bucks a person and or five bucks a person and they give you a map mm. and on that map were uh, well when they first started out they had about forty homes and then it went to about sixty five houses. Mm. And they had a little brief description of the layout and the size and mm-hmm. what they were yep, doing. Sir. Yep. And you would uh, jump in your car at, at nine o'clock in the morning and trot <laughs> off to all these houses. Yes. And I think you actually learned more about a layout mm. in that format mm. than any other format. That's and, very true. You know, you'd see you'd see great ideas, and then you'd say, "Oh boy, I'm not going to do that." Mm. <laughs> Yeah, the limbo layouts, or what is it called, the limbo stick, where you have to go backwards, and yes, I've I've seen a few of those, and I've kind of thought, hmm, not a layout uh, option for me. Um, Yeah, I guess it's where the layout evolves larger than, uh, you know, the the owner had originally intended, so you have to do kind of backflips in order to contort your way into, like, a particular corner to see some vista. Yeah, those, uh, those layouts, learning, learning experiences, yes. Well, it's sort of like the, you know, the... Uh, the cottage or the the camp style. Oh well, you got your main camp. And then hey, let's put an addition on. <laughs> it never works out. Yes. But uh, um, you know, it's it. But it's neat to see. It's and and the other thing that's striking in some cases. Um, I can think of three layouts in uh, this one particular area called Guelph, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, there was three towns. There was Guelph, uh, Cambridge, and uh, Waterloo area. Mm. And um, they're all relatively very close, but that's where all the layouts were. And, yes. and you'd go to one layout, and it was an older gentleman. He probably started in the late 60s, maybe mm-hmm. early 70s. And when you see the technology to a guy who maybe just uh, – started um five years ago yeah it was quite shocking yet some layouts stood the test of time certainly stood the test of time they just were fantastic they ran well they um 
you know, they didn't have DCC. Uh, they were cab control, but mm-hmm. oh man, they just beautiful and beautiful scenery and beautiful work. And then, but you could see the techno how technology has helped mm. in so many areas of model railroading. Mm. Mm. Interesting, interesting. So Mike O'Dorney put out some interesting ideas, theories, hypotheses that he determined to be fact through his own experience, and I wanted to raise them with you because I think if anyone has seen or at least knows of people that produce a lot of modules, it would be you, Clark Kearney. Do you Do you have a sense of a modules per modeler ratio that exists? I mean, I've not had this opportunity to talk to Mike Slater about this, and having talked to Mike O'Donnell about it, I thought it'd be fascinating to talk to Mike Slater as well. He strikes me as someone who probably has eight to ten modules at any given time that he's working on actively, and probably has the same number again, potentially, of modules that he just maintains. You know a lot of folks that are in the modular community. What's your sense of that? Like, do, do people normally maintain like three or four, or what's your sense of that number? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, years ago, uh, when I was a member of the uh, Aaron Mills Model Railroad Club, uh, mm-hmm. we were a modular group. And one, f- it, it, I think it also depends on um, your ability to store them. Mm. That's, to mm. me, the big trick, and the ability to transport them. One of the rules in the – well, I shouldn't say that. In the club, we actually went out and bought a trailer. We mm. modified the trailer to hold modules. And we would take probably – I'm just trying to count roughly. Uh, I bet you we would take to a show 40-plus modules. Mm-hmm. And as a group, now we had a big group. There was probably 25 of us in that group. Now, uh, three of us did not own any modules because we, did, we didn't have any space to hold Interesting. them. But we, uh, one particular uh, person and myself, a friend of mine named Bob, Bob and I ran the yard, which was club-owned. And there was probably almost seven modules just in the yard and they were in the trailer and then a lot of guys a couple guys had had um you know pickup trucks with a with the um covered back end um and they would probably stack five or six modules in there and one fellow in particular he owned at least 10 Mm. but he had he was in a uh, glass shop business and he Mm -hmm. had a fairly large shop and he would he had ability to store the modules in his shop interesting and that was really nice because you didn't have to lug them up and down a basement he yes, opened yeah. up the big uh, garage door yeah and you basically could drive his well he'd drive his truck in and he also had a trailer mm. and we would we would just basically walk over pick up the modules and slide them in so you didn't have to lift and slug them from inside a house mm. And I think that's the other that's the other thing. Um, even myself now, I I don't think I would want to own a module. I own two. Um, later on, I had two uh, HO modules, but it's the lugging and slugging. Mm. Unless you're stacking them in the in the garage outside in the winter, which is probably not the best way no. to, to store them. It's the lugging and slugging. As you get older, you just don't want to do it. Mm. And I think this is why. T-Track is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. 
always gets back to D-Track, like turning always it's back to D-Track. It, it, it's, it just, it, you know, I, I chuckle about it, but if you're an older modeler, mm. T-Track is great because you can pick up uh, three or four modules, put them in your backseat of your car, and, you know, make another trip down to the basement, pick up another three or four, put them in your car, and mm. you're done, you know? Mm. So it's, 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 it's a lot easier than trying to slug a, a standard uh, HO module up and down stairs, mm. as most of us, you know, who are into model railroading in the north especially, have a basement. Mm. Now, if you're in Florida or California and you have, you know, a storage facility outside or a shed, mm. that's a lot easier. But still, you got to have a vehicle to transport the stuff. Yes. So I think that all depends... All of those factors depends on how much module, how many modules you want to own. Mm. Mm. Because I know, today, I know today I wouldn't want to be slugging and lifting modules up out of my basement. Uh, so in terms of the technology around modules, certainly I remember a few years ago, perhaps, perhaps the professor was the sole, but there was some discussion associated with, depending on where you live, aluminum or aluminium modules. That's never really caught on, which I've, I've been waiting for that stuff to come out, you know, in some reasonable spec, gator foam, all these kind of technologies that were talked about for, for you know, a few months at least for being the saviour of the, the substantial size modular community. I've not seen any of those technologies come out. Am I missing the aluminum revolution that has occurred in modules, Clark Cooning, or has that just not occurred? I don't think it ever occurred. Yeah. Um... I think I mentioned at one point I found, uh, I think we had this discussion with the professor. Um, I found a manufacturer yes. who had uh, what what was referred to in Australia is, I think it's called cuboid or... Cublock or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was a similar technology. Yeah. No, and the I guy actually, still has a website, but you can't seem to order it. And yeah, no, that was, I mean, I'd still periodically go back and try to... See if someone's actually cracked this this nut, yeah. but no one has. Well, this guy, this guy, he did not build module. He had a big uh, firm, and he was doing it for something else. Certainly. And I had basically contracted him to to build these prototypes, which he did for me. And mm -hmm. I, matter of fact, I have them still. And um, I thought we could sell them, but I think the cost. Uh, I don't know what the cost would be today, but even then it was getting fairly high per module. Yes. But uh, why we're not using gator foam technology in a laser cutter or a CNC machine, that one escapes me. Well, this I, Hatton's offering, which I have not heard of until Mike O'Donnell told me about it, I'm going to do some investigation on, because it would take a company like Hatton's in the UK to create a lightweight module technology for it to, you know, but I mean, certainly in the US, there are, I don't know, at least three companies that make various forms of modules, probably six companies now, I say it, um, where, you know, they deliver the wood to your door and you kind of screw it all together. Our, our friend Ted Stevens obviously uses, what's the name? It uses a company um, and has used a company historically that deliver these. I think that's Seavers. Seavers, yes. Seavers is uh, probably one of the best known in the US. And it's interesting that they haven't realized that there's probably a market for, for slightly lower weight, slightly higher rigidity, uh, module offerings. But yeah, well, the, interesting. The, the one that uh, Mike was talking about, the, 
the um, Hatton one, from what I understand, because I was watching Pelly Solberg uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook with his, and it is basically an HO knockoff of a T-Track module. There are probably it, there are probably three. It all goes back to T-Track. Um, it all goes. I think there's three or four T-Track laser cutters in the states. Mm-hmm. I know there is one here in Ontario, and he. Uh, basically, that's what they're doing. They're building these modules only in HO modular form, okay. but the same same technology, Interesting. basically. Interesting. And um, so it's not, I won't say, it, it's just a change of scale rather than than a uh, change total of change yeah. of, of uh, it's not something new. I, I kind of chuckle, you know, I see on the forums and all the web and the Facebook pages and people say, Oh, has anybody tried this? And I, yeah, it's been done like a zillion times. You're just, you're just too new to know. Um, but, but aluminum, so, aluminium remains elusive. Yet aluminum remains is, elusive. It, That's the title for this joke. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Al- aluminum is not just for pop cans. Yeah. Damn skippy. I, it, it always, so, so you were responsible. It's good to know who to blame in these circumstances. And basically the, just the cost basis for the manufacturing of these module things was just not there. I think per, well, again, you know, I, we built these two modules. We brought them into Canada. Mm. We showed our module guys in the, in the other club that mm-hmm. we were in the Credit Valley model railroad club. And a lot of guys were interested because they were getting older. They yeah, liked the all the reasons weight. you stated. Yeah. They like the lightweight, and then when you said, "Well, they're about three hundred bucks a piece," they yeah. said, "Well, I can build a heck of a lot many <laughs> modules." For that. Yeah. I said, "Yes, but how much is you know the medication for the back pain?" <laughs> yes, how long will you stay in this hobby if you have to lug those modules around? Yeah, exactly. God. So it's and you know I I when Mike said about how they're laser cutting and and how Pelly has had a little adjustment problem. One of the big problems is, is that when you set the wood in a laser, and this goes back to even kit manufacturing. Yeah, certainly. Because it's basically, that's all you're building is a kit, only in this case a module. Yes. Is that when the thickness of the wood is, you measure it, you cut it, you might give a boy, uh, and I'm just picking a number, like a 30-second spacing. Yeah. If that wood swells at any time, if the if the it's not going to fit, and you see that even in kits where it's such a snug fit, mostly because the wood has swelled a little bit or you know the moisture, so and that's almost impossible to control. Yeah, yeah. So, but, so many uh, topics, Clark coding, so many revisited topics. And you yeah, know what? Yes, but isn't that what model railroading's about? <laughs> Isn't that what it's about? Until so, someone breaks little, the... A little, uh, thing, a little tip off for anybody who's listening or going to listen in the future, and, they, and they've and they been thinking about Arduinos. Ooh, There's a guy named Paul McCorder. Mm-hmm. I've heard his name before. Yes, he's a he was a teacher, and go to YouTube, look him up. He, without a doubt, has the best learning on... Arduinos and just takes you through anything and everything that you could want to know, but so simply, even I understand it. Very good. Very so, good. 
And his name is spelled, it's Paul McWhorter, M-C-W-H-O-R-T-E-R. And I'll tell you, and also he's uh, got this new studio where he's doing these uh, clinics. Mm. And it is fantastic. And, you know, I, I know nothing. I'm not a big computer guy, and I wasn't certainly an Arduino guy, mm. but I followed this guy, and, you know, I stayed up one night till 2 o'clock, and I got a blinking light working, and I thought <laughs> So <laughs> It is interesting. It is interesting. I've always thought about this with this hobby, that there are people, and it's to do with individual personal preference and passion without question, but you've got the guys that, like, develop open LCB. And then you've got people like Dave Barraza who are like, they're not that guy, but they see it and think it's brilliant and spend, you know, many nights working on it. And then it kind of trickles through the various layers. And you are, on a number of things, within the top two layers, tiers, for a better term, associated with getting obsessive, doing it and evangelizing it. With regards to Arduino specifically, I think you're probably in the, the fourth or fifth tier. But it's interesting, the time frames and the kind of trickle down of, of these ideas and uh, yeah, now you're doing Arduinos. I think probably more people should consider doing Arduinos, Clark Kearney. Well, but you know what happens? To, uh, you you get to to a point on your and, and this is what happened to me. You get to a point on your layout, mm-hmm. and you go, "I want to look at signaling, but I want something that I can do, or I can make, or I can. How can I do this? Or just something." As simple as uh, infrared, I want to detect if the if the train is in the hidden staging yard. Where is it, and how do I do that? And Arduinos make it so simple. And you hear people about, oh yeah, I just use an Arduino, but yeah, okay, well then it's like, well you got to program it, and you got to write a code. Well, so you gotta you gotta learn a little bit about it. It's the same as building a layout, though. If when you start a layout, oh, what's the first thing? Oh, you got to build some uh, bench work. Well, I'm not a carpenter. What do I know? So you do a little research. You read mm-hmm. a book. Oh, okay, I'm going to learn Algerder construction, or I'm going to learn how to do this. <laughs> the next thing you know, you could actually use a, a table saw. Oh, man. And still, and still have and 10 And so minutes. it begins. So it begins. And so it begins. That's right. <laughs> Clark, it's been an absolute pleasure always. We had a new caller who unfortunately hung up somewhere between this thing i pleaded with him to call back in uh oh, but okay. uh, you know you know how these things go thank you very much for calling in today a pleasure chatting as always and uh hopefully we will get john yates maybe i need to call him specifically let me try that out anyway clark this isn't your worry thank you very much for calling in today pleasure chatting thank you very much Well, another great opportunity to chat with two gentlemen in the hobby who clearly have some very interesting ideas worth sharing. Clark Kooning, Michael Dorney, thank you both very much for the opportunity to chat today. We did have a caller. I'm going to shout him out, John Yates, who called in. But unfortunately, through the Clark Kooning discussion, 20 minutes of our discussion later was too long for John Yates to wait. John, I hope you do call back in. And I should warn people... <clears throat> I should warn new callers in particular. What you hear in Model Rail Radio associated with the banter, particularly with new callers, I usually like to continue the banter with regular callers for about 15 minutes and then get on new callers if the timing works. It may be a little bit too long for some new callers, particularly those that might be slightly 
more, well, excited, let's not say impatient, excited to get a model rail radio. If you do have a time limit to talk, the best way to do it is to let me know in the chat. Um, and sometimes I will also engage with new callers in the chat and get a sense of that. But sorry, John Yates, we, I mean to catch up with you in a future recording. But anyway, thanks very much to Michael Dorney and also Clark Cooning for the opportunity to chat today. And thanks for everyone else for listening in. Good afternoon. <laughs>